You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. Welcome to the first ever podcast of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable. My name is Nick Tony, your host, and I'm joined here by longtime Roundtable member, uh, living historian, teacher, and baseball coach Matt George. Matt, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Matt, you are here in full uniform. I know you do a lot of living historian work. Can you tell us about the uniform and the work that you do? Well, I, towards the end of my teaching career at Mahanison, I used to bring in a uh, taught eighth grade social studies and uh, taught the Civil War, naturally. It's part of the uh, seventh and eighth grade curriculum. Um, most schools teach the Civil War uh, at the be- near the beginning of eighth grade. A few of them uh, do it at the end of seventh, but I always did it around the beginning of eighth. And I would invite another longtime roundtable member, Howie Young, who is a reenactor. And Howie would come in and he would do my classes. And as I was getting close to retirement, I remember saying to Howie, Howie, you're having too much fun doing this. I, I think I'd like to do this once I retire. So um, I retired, uh, not from coaching, but I retired from teaching in 1998. And it wasn't too long after that, although I can't remember the first time... Um, I know some of the earlier places I went to, but I can't remember which one was the first. But it wasn't too long after that that I started doing living history in um, high schools, middle schools. Uh, by now, it's been about 15 years uh, or so that I've been doing this. And I've done the New York State Museums, several programs there. Uh, uh, State University of New York at... Uh, uh, at Albany, um, one of the roundtable's good friends, a professor there, actually, I probably won't be back there now because he retired at a young 83, but <laughs> he used to invite me um, in, and so I was doing um, uh, juniors and seniors. That's the, the top level of the students I've ever done. I've done uh, not too many elementary school level, but the vast majority have been middle schools and high schools, and also uh, state historical societies, uh, local historical societies, I should say, and uh, uh, senior citizen groups and um, retirement groups, and in fact, just about a few Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. Uh, the Cub Scouts, too, were kind of young. Um, but I've done uh, just about anybody who wanted me. Right. I think one of the great things about living history work is uh, obviously military maneuvers and weapons is, is a big part of it. But uh, in the end, you're portraying an actual person from an actual regiment. And so there, there is research that goes into who that person was, who that regiment was. Um, who who do you portray? Do you portray a specific well, person? Well, let me explain this to you. I have tried, and I have, uh, over the years, we've had roundtable members who not only have had one ancestor who fought in the war, um, but several. In fact, the late Sue Nose actually had uh, people on both sides of the war as uh, ancestors that uh, fought. 
And I couldn't find anybody. It's not that I didn't have people here, but they, for whatever reasons, didn't fight. They were too old, too young, or whatever. Um, so I couldn't find anybody. So when I started doing this, I decided to adopt a regiment. And since at the time I was taught, uh, teaching in Schenectady County, I decided to adopt 134th New York, uh, a regiment that came 50% uh, from Schenectady County and the other 50% from Schoharie County. And when I, uh, about halfway through um, my time as doing these living history presentations, I decided to change it from just a simple presentation uh, to making it more of a theoretical act and actually doing it first person. But to correct a little bit, I don't represent personally any real person. Okay. I am introduced as Private George at 134th New York, but in truth there was no Private George. However, right. everything that happens to Private George, including his three best friends who are actual people in history, I've researched them, um, they were real people, and they all were uh, killed uh, the first day at Gettysburg. Wow. And uh, their remains were shipped home to Schenectady on uh, July 26th, uh, 1863. And so I've researched them and all the local places, events, names, and everything else has been researched but as I tell the older kids, the only lie, when I come out of character, I tell them that the only lie is me. There was no me. Right, right. Who, who were the other guys? Who, who were the three? Well, they were all privates. Um, a lot of what the, their history, particularly before they enlisted, are so typical uh, of, because I make, being a former teacher, I try to bring in more than just the military side of it. In fact, the military fighting uh, doesn't even enter into, into the last half of my presentation. But two of the three were immigrants. They all were working in the same mill, Henry Crane's mill in Schenectady. They, I have no proof that they knew each other, but they almost had to. They all were in the same 100-man company. They all worked for the same employer. And so to think that out of 100 men uh, who worked for the same employer in the same company, they, they had to have known each other. One was the fairly old for a Civil War soldier. He was, uh, um, his name was Swales, and he was from... I believe Yorkshire, England. I don't know personally why he came here, but I'm guessing, as in the case of many immigrants, he came for work. And he was in his 40s. Um, I'd say, again, 46, 47, 48. Um, the other gentleman, he, was a, he worked as a flax cleaner. And one of the things I've always asked uh, the kids, uh, particularly middle school kids, is to ask them how many know what flax is. And, of course, it's a typical of our times. I've only, in 15 years, found two students who knew what flax was. 
But I, I make it a point to ask because it's just a personal interest right. to me to see if there is anybody that knows. Um, I should point out that our president, Erin uh, Blargens, uh, one of her classes, uh, there was a little girl who knew what flax was. So wow, okay. That was, uh, that was something. So we haven't lost all hope. Right. Uh, the other uh, gentleman was probably, was originally from Windsor, Maine. He was, uh, he rose to rank of sergeant. He married a Rotterdam girl. Um, I believe her, uh, she, uh, her name was Truax. And the Truax family is uh, a common name in the Amsterdam and uh, Schenectady County uh, areas. He was married at the time he uh, enlisted, and he was a machinist. And I, I think there's a, a logical connection with that. I think as a machinist of the three, he was probably more highly skilled, probably more highly paid, and probably had a certain degree of leadership qualities. I'm just guessing. But, um, and uh, because he had skills. And he um, was a married man instead of being single. Right. And eventually became sergeant, sergeant. which I would tend to expect right and the third most interesting person was alonzo van arnhem and that's a very common dutch name in the albany and schenectady county areas and there's a great mystery involved with him and if you want i'll, I'll get into that mystery Please. but he was uh, i've researched him the 1850 census i find uh, at one point he does list himself as being from gildeland center but the 1850 census finds his mother and his father and I, and I believe two other um, brothers or sisters living in Rotterdam Junction and living in, in which, not pardon me, I excuse me, in, in um, Mohawkville, not Rotterdam Junction, but Mohawkville today is both sides of what is now Altamont Avenue from Crane Street to Curry Road. And that's exactly where almost a, a large proportion of Henry Crane's mill workers lived in mill housing. So again, I, I, we, I don't have the details, but I would suspect that the family might have been a more rural family from Gilliland Center, but the whole family ended up working for Crane's mills because he's a 10-year-old and he's living in, in Mohawkville, and that's in the area where the mill houses, the mill housing w was located and where uh, the various uh, um, mill buildings. Uh, it turns out that Alonzo, 10 years later, when he musters in, uh, he is a twine finisher. Now he's in Mohawkville as a 10 or 11 year old and 10 year in 1862 he's now 21 or soon to be 21 and he's w still in Mohawkville and only he's a twine finisher so to me it looks like an entire family that was working for the mill that's just a, a guess of wow. my part so this this is the great thing about the kind of work that you do now here here we have three three men um slightly different backgrounds but all from the same area, uh, two immigrants um, working in the same mill. Uh, the war comes. I think the, uh, the 134th was mustered in September of 62, yep. 1862. 
they were they were uh, originally the um, the eleventh uh, corps was uh, had predominantly German or German speaking regiments or German descendants. And then uh, when Lincoln issued the call for uh, 300,000 volunteers, New York again had an additional quota that they had to fill. And more regiments were added to the 11th Corps. And in fact, they were called, quote, the American regiments as opposed to the German regiments that were already there. Um, so they came in as one of the, quote, American regiments along with the 154th New York out in the middle part of the state. And... Um, they had, uh, I'm sure that uh, these young men or gentlemen probably could have enlisted in 61, but didn't. And one of the points, and again, some of this is, is guesswork or logical conclusions that sure. I draw. What I try to point out to the kids is, and I try to ask them, why didn't... Why didn't they um, join in 61? Why did it take another appeal by their president to get them to join? And I said, in the case of Alonzo Van Arnhem, if he was working, every penny he made went to the family. And if you enlist, that's bread you're taking out of your family's right. mouths. Mm -hmm. And it took a second appeal and a second quota for New York State. Might have been 60,000 men that New York State had to fill for their quota before they decided there, and there had to have been a major conflict. And I try to get these kids to think about it. And again, I'm doing this first person. And I, as a, fir as a first person presentation, uh, I basically say I I was extremely conflicted. On one hand, my president, my president, called for me to, to sacrifice myself, to give myself as a loyalty and duty to my country, and yet my family needed me. And then I find some student look him directly in the eye and say, "Well, what would you do?" And there, it does require people to do some self-examination and thinking about even themselves. Sure, and and there were a lot of uh, mixed feelings, I think, even that early in the war, uh, in terms of um, uh, taking the president up on that call. I mean, obviously, if you're making a living wage and you're providing for your family, uh, that's an important uh, element uh, that, that becomes part of your decision. But... Um, the cause. Uh, can you speak about the cause? Did, did did are there writings from these three men? I I have yet to find a picture. I have yet to find a letter. So uh, again, it's me drawing some logical sure. okay. conclusions, and in order to flesh them out as human beings, I add a sense of personality and personal feelings that I assigned to particularly the young Van Arnhem boy that I didn't really know existed. But reading books like Causes and Comrades um, by James McPherson, I just conveniently take a lot of those sure. and insert those into my presentation. So what I'm telling him is not necessarily true, but it's not necessarily untrue. Right, sure. 
Yeah, so. Um, so, so they're mustered in September of 1862. Uh, where do they go from there? Well, according to the one regimental history um, by a gentleman who now lives in Pennsylvania, uh, it's called Under the Crescent and the Star because, as it turned out, they were in the 11th Corps, and then shortly after Gettysburg, um, the 11th Corps was so mangled that they divided the 11th, they combined the 11th Corps with uh, another, and it, they went west, and they became part of the 20th Corps, which is the symbol was the star. Um, but they were, when they first were um, mustered in, originally the agreement was that the mustering in camp would be in Schenectady. But it's a little hazy there. Uh, I'm not sure. And then I again, I, I I do add a little embellishment, you know, here and there. What I what I consider logical embellishment. I said it could perhaps have been a political deal, and I smile and say, "Well, they don't make political deals anymore, do they?" And of course, that gets a big laugh. The older the crowd, the bigger the laugh. Sure. Uh, but it never ended up being there. Now again, half the regiment was from Schoharie, and as it turned out, the final decision that was that the mustering in camp would be in Schoharie, and that was located near where the, um, in back of where the library is, and very much on a lot of the grounds of what is now the Guernsey Nursery in Schoharie, near the Schoharie Creek, the Schoharie River. So that's where they were mustered in, and that's where they trained to be soldier boys. And I do have a lot of a number of accounts from the camp, and so I incorporate incorporate that into my presentation. Uh, a, a number of them did get sick, so who didn't during the Civil War? Yeah. And of course, the question comes up as to why. And then I put in what I've read. It was that many young men with uh, and having never been away from home. It's easy to catch a lot of diseases. Mm -hmm. Is it is it not mama's cooking? Is it the water from the Schoharie Creek? Mm -hmm. Or is it any combination, you know, all these young men being confined in close quarters? Um, but they soon recover. Um, and then uh, one of the standard jokes is uh, I asked the kids that uh, the soldiers called that, quote, the trots, and how many know, and some have no idea, and others giggle. Um, it's a... a Standard thing I do. I, yeah. I, I, I take great amusement yeah, in bringing you know, that it, up. It's fun. It gets a laugh from the kids, but yeah. it proves a point. I mean, yeah. that was a major issue that uh, you know a lot of a lot of these guys were uh, were bathing in the same water that they were you know essentially using as a bathroom. When I've done the Boy Scouts and the Cub Scouts, and I've done a total of between the the two of them combined, I've probably done five or six different Cub Scout or Boy Scout troops together. And I like to point out as a little plug for them, and I tell them, you know, you fellas know more about sanitation than the entire regiment probably did during the Civil War. <laughs> right. um, so, they, so they were there. Um, they trained. They didn't even have muskets at first. They were provided, I believe, eventually with 1861 Springfields, but uh, there was some unhappiness based on the regimental history I read that— uh, uh, a lot of frustration saying, how can we be expected to fight uh, when we all we are training with is sticks? You know, and of course, in the presentation, I again look somebody straight in the eye and say, well, 
how many ribs do you think would be terrified of me if I had a stick in my hand? And again, it gets another laugh. Um, and another thing that was so typical of regiments in those days, uh, all regiments, uh, all local regiments, they all believed in young men, and there's a certain amount of machismo here and, and bravado, but they all thought they were tougher than anybody else in the world. And all they needed was to have their chance to prove that they were, one of them was as good as any 10 rebels. And it was the opposite way down mm. south. Yeah. So uh, there are young people looking to prove themselves and um, not having, even in 62, not really understanding what war was. And, and they, I think, get that understanding pretty quickly. Oh, um, yeah, seeing the elephant, as it was called. Yeah. They, they um, I don't think they were engaged, but they were at Fredericksburg. Um, which was a terrible union defeat. Um, and I, so I think that they, they very quickly became acclimated. I, they could be. I, I, the, I have them in the defenses of Washington, D.C. Okay. through early 63. And then there was a scare around the time of Antietam, and they were moved out of camp. I don't even mention this in my presentation. But they were moved out of camp in Maryland because everybody was afraid that old Jack Jackson was on the loose. And it's about the time of Antietam. But nothing happened, and they went back to, to camp in the defenses of Washington, D.C., and then didn't move out again, to the best of my knowledge, mm-hmm. didn't move out again until um, around just before and around the time of Chancellorsville. Okay. And they arrived. They were at Chancellorsville. And, again, fate, and I try to bring up the importance of fate, they would have been on the extreme right where Jackson rolled up the 11th Corps. But that their brigade, I believe, was moved out of line and into reserve. And there was a great deal of ha- unhappiness there. Because they were going to be denied, as it turned out, they were, well, we're, you know, we're being held in reserve, don't they know yeah, that we're yeah. upstate New York, boys? What's, yeah, right. Well, as it turned out. Reserve was a pretty good place to be at Chancellorsville. When Jackson yeah. rolled up the entire right-hand mm-hmm. side, that's exactly where they would have been. Yeah. So, so uh, now you mentioned that. I think they, they had one person killed, uh, wounded at Chancellorsville. At Chancellorsville. Yeah. Now, they, the three gentlemen... Uh, in your uh, uh, portrayal, uh, you mentioned that they all die uh, or are killed. Swales was wounded and hung on for five days. Okay. The other two and at Gettysburg. At correct. Gettysburg, okay. and um, if he was wounded, and I've been to uh, the Spangler Farm where the Eleventh Corps Hospital was, and I've talked to some people there, and there is no doubt that he was probably there at that barn. That's where all the 11th Corps people were taken. And um, um, he, if he died, he would have been temporarily buried there. I haven't gotten the chance to l- look at the records to see if he was put in the ground there or how accurate the records were. But he, that was the 11th Corps Hospital. And he would have he would have been brought there, and he would have died there. Now, 
The other two, more or less, were probably killed outright. What I do have, again, and it's part of that mystery that I'll get to um, if we have the time, um, just by sheer accident, I was at the Old Stone Fort at their Living History Day. I go to that uh, when they have it. They, they, they Now every other year they run a timeline, and then other years they run Civil War Living History Weekend. And I was there, and I went upstate, upstairs to their museum, and I was looking through a glass case. And there, underneath the glass case, was a yellow 3x5 card. It had been there forever. And typed, and it looked to me like it was typed on an old typewriter, typed, and there was this mangled bullet, totally mangled, and it says, the bullet that killed... 134th soldier, Alonzo Van Arnhem, wow. who's buried in Schenectady. Well, of course, the joke is, we don't know where he's buried. But Van Arnhem died in Gettysburg. And Schoharie is the bullet that killed him. Wow. And the question is, you'd like to know that whole story. Yeah. Now, all I get is just, just guesswork. You have pieces. He might have been brought in. They took they either tried to save him or he was dead or they uh, s- some doctor took out the bullet maybe two of the fellows that brought him in or the fellow that brought him in or whatever were from Skahari and i'm just guessing the doctor said here boys here's the bullet that killed your <laughs> your buddy and then it ends up in their hands and then it ends up in the museum in Skahari wow that is some story matt it it, w- it would be great if we could uh, take those pieces that you have and, and really put them together. Well, if you, if you want, and we can get this out of the way, I, I'll tell you the interesting mystery that's about Van Arnhem. If you look at his mustering in papers, he's 21. He is, he is a twine finisher. And a few more kids know what twine is when mm-hmm. I do the presentation. But basically, twine is very, very coarse. And in order to make it usable and pliable, you have to treat it. You have to put a waxy substance on it to make it very pliable and usable as string. And young Alonzo's job was a twine finisher. However, when you look at the mustering in papers, besides telling you that he's 570, has light hair, light complexion, and that he's a twine finisher, where he signs his name, the name is signed, but as it turns out, it's not his handwriting. There is an X and there's an arrow and it says EP. And next to the EP, it says his mark. Now, what that tells me is that the recruiting sergeant, Alonzo, couldn't read or write. Wow. And so he made his mark. And EP was whoever the official was or the recruiting sergeant verifies it. This is Alonzo Van Arnhem. It's his mark. So we had a 21-year-old kid. I mean, he's 21 when he signs up, and he's probably 21 if not. I mean, this is 63. He's Mm -hmm. dead, or 62. He's dead by 63, so he isn't much older. And so here's a young kid that can't read or write who gave his life for his country, and here's the mystery. We have no idea where he is. Wow. Do we know where they were fighting uh, uh, that day in Gettysburg? Yep. Well, they— they all were fighting at the brickyard, which was on day one, and I can tell you about that, but just to get back to Van Arnhem, all three of them arrive home. Now, the, the, the day one of Gettysburg is July 1st, 1863. They don't arrive back in Schenectady 
by by train until July 26. Now that's pretty gruesome yeah. when you think about it, anyways, because that's 25 to 20 to 25 days since whales lasted five days uh, after they were killed in the middle of summer. They the article there's a newspaper article in the Schenectady Union Star about a special service that was held for three heroes. And the Reverend Day, which was the big abolitionist minister in Schenectady, gave the uh, um, uh, eulogy. But that's typical because he did a great percentage of the eulogies <laughs> for all the Schenectady men that came back. And in the article, they were buried in Crane's Grove. Now remember, they all three were employees of Henry Crane, who was rich. Crane, they were put in the ground on Crane's Grove. And the first question was, where is Crane's Grove? If it's, if it's Crane's property, it has to be on mill property in Mohawkville, somewhere in between Crane Street and um, Curry Road on what is now Altamont Avenue. That's where they were put in the ground on July 26th. The next thing I know, and looking for another member of the 134th in Vail Cemetery, I find a monument. Oh, it says in the article that there is no marker, but a, a, a monument is to be raised for the three heroes. So they're put in the ground, no monument, but a, due to the liberality of Henry Crane. He's footing the bill. So they're going to put a monument up to honor the three men that were killed. Of course, Crane's name was in there, but the three heroes were not. Well, their names are in the article. They are in the article. Okay. Yeah. They, and they were put in the ground. Oh, they list all three okay. of the three heroes. Mm -hmm. So the next thing I know, and in, in, in looking for somebody else in Vail Cemetery, I find this monument. It's got Crane's name on the bottom of it. And on the monument is uh, Jacob Trask and Samuel Swales. Question. Where's the 21-year-old kid? Uh, this is quite a few years ago, and they tell me that they've got a new person in the records building that's much more cooperative. But when I had gone there, and this is probably almost 15 years ago, and I asked for records, I was kind of um, curtly told that if their name's on our monument, they're not there. Well, it rings up the question is, <clears throat> where is Van Arnhem? Now, my this is all hypothetical. There are three possibilities. One is there, but his name isn't on the monument. Now, if this family has nothing, maybe there were charges levied against the families to have their the engraving done on the monument. I, I, I don't know. Right. And so they couldn't afford it. And in spite of the fact there's nothing listed in the cemetery records, even though if he's not on the monument, he's not there— I think he might still be there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's one possibility. Second one is that when they were probably disinterred from Crane's Grove and put in Vail, and that's where they either moved the monument or the monument was set up, because I don't know when that happened, um, his family decided they didn't want him there, and they buried him locally, except a lady I know by the name of uh, uh, Paula Schaefer, who has done a lot of research with the Van Arnhems. She says that in all the local Van Arnhem small family cemeteries, she can't find anybody by that name or age. So that kind of ended up being a dead end. We can't find anybody in the local 
farm cemeteries and family cemeteries for Van Arnhem. The third most unlikely one, but the one that always gets the most raised eyebrows. And again, this is like a million to one shot. I doubt it very much. But at the time that they were disinterred to be moved to Vail, uh, again, there might have been costs involved. What if the Van Arnhem family couldn't or wouldn't pay those costs? Mm. Which meant he's still where he was originally put. And then, of course, that raises the question is, where is Crane's Grove? One of our uh, previous speakers who spoke on the Reverend Day, okay, he has researched the Reverend Day, and he contacted me once, and he said he thinks he knows where Crane's Grove was based on some of the research that he had done with the Reverend Day. And uh, I doubt it very much, but there is that million-to-one shot that if he was left in the ground, uh, what I like to do is have people think about Altamont Avenue and think about where he thinks Crane's Grove was. And as it turns out, Crane's Grove is now where the McDonald's parking wow. lot is on Altamont wow. Avenue. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Right. But, but it, always, that, it always raises that interesting what if. What if he is under the McDonald's, which would be a shame. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully uh, if he's there, wherever he is, that uh, we can find out one of these days. What happened at Gettysburg is that, uh, again, when they arrived there, the 1st and the 11th Corps were the first ones to get there. And um, uh, the 1st um, Corps went west and mostly west of town, including the Iron Brigade. And the 11th Corps went kind of north of town as a general statement. And when they were sent north of town and Francis Marlowe, and they went north of town. Um, the members of Coster's brigade, it was a four-regiment brigade, they were once again, after being disappointed at Chancellorsville because they never had a chance to prove their glory, they were once again told, well, everybody's going north of town, but we were going to hold your brigade in reserve. Nah. And so the four regiments small brigade, was held in reserve south of town. Well, when the disaster north of town and the poor Germans fled once again, and uh, it was awful, uh, the highest, the regiment with the highest percentage of loss um, in the entire Battle of Gettysburg was the 40, I think it's a 45th, can't remember, I'm tempted to say the 45th Ohio, but I'm not sure, maybe it was a New York regiment. Um, they had the dubious distinction of having a 80, I think it was an 85% casualty rate. But when they fled back through the town, Coster was contacted and said, look, you go down by the brickyard. There's a brickyard now at, at the end of town. You go down to the brickyard. Today it's in the middle of town, but mm -hmm. at that point in time it was the end of town. And more or less you hold them off and two, our boys have a chance to go back up onto the high ground on Cemetery Hill right. and dig in. So today you would probably more likely call this a suicide mission. Yeah. Well, as it turned out, Coster decided to keep one of his four regiments er, uh, in, in reserve. So the 53rd 
Pennsylvania was kept in reserve, and he went forward with three little regiments of about 400 and found um, the uh, brickyard and set up a defensive position. And they, they did fairly well, considering. Um, the the uh, 27th Pennsylvania was on the left. The 154th New York uh, was um, in the middle. And um, the 134th New York was on the right. And uh, their line extended over a little stream that's still there, Stevens Run. And uh, they did refuse the right side a little bit as added protection. And they waited, and they didn't have to wait long because two entire uh, Confederate brigades, uh, Hayes and Early, and each brigade was noticed way bigger mm -hmm. alone. Than, mm -hmm. And they held for about 15 minutes. I'm sure for the men involved, it probably seemed like forever. Yeah, I can only imagine. But uh, they were ordered when there were so many Confederates that they the Confederates began to move out right and left, particularly to the Confederates' left and the Union right. And it wasn't long before uh, the 134th particularly were not only being shot at from the side, but they were being shot at from the rear. And then Coster at that point um, decided that it was time for an orderly withdrawal. And the 27th uh, Pennsylvania withdrew, quote, in order, so did the 134th New York. Both of them had about a 50% casualty rate. And the, the four fellows in the 154th New York from the middle part of the state never got the order. Ugh. And um, I forget, the again, the percentage, but it was, I think, the second highest casualty rate of any regiment in Gettysburg. Most of them were almost captured in total. But the killed, wounded, and captured, there wasn't anything left at 154th. There were stragglers. That was about wow. it. By the time they got back to camp, uh, wh where did the where did the one thirty fourth reform? On Cemetery Hill, on Cemetery and they Hill. did see some action late that night um, uh, when Hayes Louisiana Tigers did attempt to take um, East Cemetery Hill. Uh, they were fighting almost in the darkness, and even though the one thirty fourth was recuperating slightly uh, behind uh, the hill and kind of near the um, um, the uh, the um, cemetery house there for they were ordered forward to help support and in the pitch black they did get a little into a little bit of the tussle there to, and, and and saved the hill. So. Wow. Um, so uh, we we unfortunately we lose the three guys that are part of your portrayal, but just to sort of uh, wrap up the one thirty fourth, they move out west. After Gettysburg. They move out west. They become part of the whole Sherman entourage and uh, are there at uh, Riscala and Kennesaw Mountain. And uh, the second highest number of, um, I'm trying to think which one it was, whether it was Peachtree Creek, Riscala, or Kennesaw. That, that was their second highest percentage of loss, but it nothing like the 50% at uh, Gettysburg and then they were there at the end of the war and uh, you know were mustered out in 65 so wow wow so Matt uh, you have been a member of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable since the mid 80s correct 
eight, yeah, the roundtable formed in 1984. 84. And I became a member somewhere in, to, in the winter of 1986, spring of 1987. I'm not sure the month or the meeting, but... And you've done you've done a few stints as the president. Uh, you've been a very couple, involved. A couple of terms as president, and then um, then when um, Sue Nost, uh, an iconic figure in our roundtable, the most energetic young woman. Uh, well, I say young. Uh, she passed away far too young at fifty some years old. But she was a program chairman began the idea of doing commitment of postal cancellations uh, to raise money for battlefield preservation. And when she passed away, I took over as um, program chairman. And I, 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 my official position is a combination of both education chairman, since I taught school and eighth grade social studies. Um, and I've been the program chairman um, since taking over for Sue, and I'm not sure how many years that's been, but... Um, I enjoy doing that. It's uh, it's it's part of being the education chairman, and it really is nice. I get to meet a lot of uh, Civil War historians and people that I might not otherwise meet. Right. So, so, so you mentioned. I, I think the the two most important aims of the roundtable: uh, battlefield preservation. Yes, and education. definitely it has always been battlefield preservation and education. Some of our original flyers point that out, and that's one of the things that I tell people is we have a twofold mission. It's raising money for battlefield historic preservation and educating people about uh, the Civil War. So uh, I know you travel a lot. You go to Gettysburg for the anniversary. I, I know you're in Gettysburg multiple times a year. Yeah, we Sue began the idea of the commitment of postal cancellations, and somewhere around... The um, the stamps, uh, the Civil War um, commemorative stamps, uh, not the most recent ones, but the um, uh, the one there was a, a a whole block of stamps. I think there were thirty that came out in um, through ninety five through ninety seven, I believe it was, and um, right around then is when we really got into doing the commemorative postal cancellation at Gettysburg. And we've done it at, uh, especially when Sue was alive, we did it at a lot of the reenactments. We, um, somewhere around that time, it was also every year we went to Remembrance Day in November and did one there. Um, we're still doing that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the market is as strong. It's probably the symptom of the times and People don't collect stamps, or, sure. but there still is a demand, and we still do that, and it still is a major part of our fundraising. So um, we have been at Gettysburg, I think, every year since 1995, so it's hard to think that's 20-some years, wow. right? Wow, yep. And I've been at Remembrance Day almost every time. I um, I make a point now is when we go is I – I still go to the ceremony at the cemetery. I always find that to be a great uh, event. But um, we don't have, and it's a number of reasons, we don't have the participation that we used to have. In the um, the early years, we would get five, six, seven members, two or three rooms at the local hotel and spend four or five days at Gettysburg. And it was economically, it was a different time. We raised tremendous amounts of money. 
and I can't tell you what year. Well, one year, the year that they had the major rainstorm, and um, I can't tell you what year off the top of my head, but they had so much rain that the reenactment part of the celebration of the Battle of Gettysburg was postponed to August. And we had been making, you know, four, five, six thousand dollars uh wow. down there doing that. And uh we thought, well, this is not good because there won't be the crowd. And then they said, Well we're gonna do the rein- we're gonna do the uh, reenactment in August. Well, economically it was good times and we will never even come close. But if I'm not mistaken in July, we made about $10,000, and wow. we made $11,000 the next month. Now, if we make three or $400, yeah. it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was in Gettysburg for the anniversary this year, and there were big crowds, but I, I guess even 10, 15 years ago, the crowds were much bigger. Uh, the, the crowds were much bigger, and, and uh, uh, at the risk of be even hinting at being political, the, the nature of the crowd was definitely different. There's no um, doubt about that. Um, the, the the crowd was not about to buy a commemorative postal cancellation if they even knew what one was. Sure. And we were in the artist and author's tent, which we've been quite a bit at, at the reenactment, where um, people are there to sell books and they're there to sell a variety of other things, including postal cancellations and paintings. And uh, as it says, it's the artist and author's tent. Of all the people in this circus-sized tent that had made any money whatsoever was um, the gentleman who had the end part of the tent, and he was selling Confederate battle flags. Yeah, yep. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm just going to leave it there, but the crowds around his table were five deep. The gentleman across from me, a uh, retired military, was selling a book about the VMI cadets being in, in, in which VMI com- cadets had been in Mosby's range, Rangers. And, I, you know, it's an interesting the, the, topic. The Virginia Military Institute, right? He was so, yes, he was so frustrated. Uh, having been there Friday and Saturday, he at the end of Saturday, he disgustingly got up and said, I'm not coming back tomorrow. And if you want to, th- he, you know how many books he sold in two days? Two. Wow. One book wow. each day. And yet they were five deep at, at the other end of the tent. So all I'm telling you is the crowd, and most of the time people would b- walk by me and I would we have our display of commemorative postal cancellations and the only comment I got if any is what are these oh that's interesting yeah yeah and they would continue to walk on by so the, the demand was never nothing like it had been I I I I guess I shouldn't have been surprised Matt but when I parked my car uh, across the street in the large field across from the reenactment um, a gentleman told me where to park but uh, and he probably was half half joking, but uh, he said this is not a good spot for uh, someone with a New York tag. Uh, 
And I I'm said, surprised you even that, said that. I, I said, oh, I didn't think I was that far away from home, but um, it was. It, it's de- it definitely was a much much different crowd. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that are there, and just around in general, who I think use the war uh, to 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 further their own current sort of uh, political views. And I, I, we can have a much larger discussion about that. Some, some, oh, sure. you know, yeah, but, at, yeah, but at yeah. risk of, uh, yeah, well, I, it's, there's no reason to be controversial right. now anyway. Yeah, so exactly. A, so, yeah. um, so Matt, the, the other element, which, which you've already touched on, uh, is the education part. And, uh, uh like you said, um, you, you've had a lot of fun over the years, sort of fostering these connections with historians and other people, uh, in, in the Civil War uh, historical field. Um, what, how do you do that? I mean, you, you go to different conferences, you reach out to people. Yeah, it's a combination of things. I go to, I'm retired. So I, uh, I uh, real locally, uh, I'm a member of the Schenectady County Historical Society. I go downtown to the Schenectady Library. They have book talks. They have... I'm always looking at bulletin boards to see locally who's going to be here, what's going on, and um, um, and then we have uh, uh, there are things that go on, and you have to once you make a contact, you've got to stay in contact with various other groups. Uh, the um, uh, Peterborough used to run a Civil War weekend; they've stopped doing it, and without getting back to what we just talked about uh, part of the reason why they weren't doing the civil living part of the reason why they weren't doing the civil war weekend up there is it was getting too much to be too much of a political yep. problem mm-hmm. so they stopped doing that but um, the, the lady that's been involved out there with the national abolition hall of fame and the peterborough they are still running uh in june a living history for students and they bust them in, and they invite. But I still uh, have connections with with her, and she sent me an email. Matt, would you please come back, and, and we're having busloads of kids, and would you be there for one or two days, and it'll be 10 or 15 minutes for each kid, and not enough time to do my presentation, but definitely to unpack my uh, forage bag and talk about what I have, and, and, and each group of kids is different. But you keep that contact. Um, uh, quite a while ago, there's a organization in Peekskill, New York, called the uh, uh, Lincoln Society of Peekskill, and it began because on Lincoln's on his way to his inauguration, he stopped and said a few words at Peekskill. Well, they've restored several times now the railroad station, and uh, in February or March, they hold a big fundraising dinner. I go. It's expensive, but I go. Mm-hmm. And it maintains contact there. But I have gotten a few speakers by being there and then approaching the speaker later and say, hey, hey, would you like to come up to Albany, you know, and, and speak? And it just so happened that this year I don't I have not got a response back to him. There was uh, a speaker there who was absolutely fantastic, very unique. He actually sang a little bit and performed a little bit. But uh, his talk was related to in- Lincoln and um, almost indirectly, but, but related to Lincoln. His grandfather, Luigi, 
was an Italian immigrant who came here in 1918. He was a stone sculpture in uh, Italy, I think it was 18, and eventually became the chief carver at Mount Rushmore, and who never got the credit. The National Park just listed him as along with all the other laborers. Right. And his grandson always, he started off and said, I first remember my grandfather when he picked me up and said, I'm a Luigi and you are a Luigi. <laughs> uh, he wanted, uh, you know, uh, better treatment for his grandfather. And so he wrote the book uh, In the Shadow of Rushmore. And uh, I, I, he was exceptional. Uh, so I, we exchanged cards. I sent him an email. I haven't um, heard back from him. Mm-hmm. Of course, one of the drawbacks is it's very surprising. Um, um, our roundtable does have s- some things to consider. I mean, there are people who definitely will outprice us. There's no way we can afford yeah. to bring them here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think who it was. Um I had uh, I called somebody I'm trying to think who it was just within the last month and asked him about um, uh, it'll come to me in a minute asked him about the possibility uh, and I said oh when I was at the um, the Underground Railroad workshop which I go to and I took part in that I took part actually with the uh, student um, workshop the day before which was open to students but. Uh, Paul and Liz are good friends, and I mm-hmm. said, look, I'm going to I just want to be there. I want to see the kids. I want to hear them. And they had a lot of kids from Albany and Schenectady High School. And they were talking about two very, very controversial topics, gun violence and Confederate monuments. And it was great to see all those kids from Albany and Schenectady High School. But while I was there, and then the next day they had the regular conference. And there was a flyer out for an author a lady who was writing about her African-American ancestor who was in a U.S. colored troops, and she had written a book. And it was a telephone number to call. And when I called it, it was, I believe, New York City. And uh, the gentleman was very polite, and I I said, basically, um, sir, before we go any further, he said, yeah, we'll do other groups. Uh, We'll come up. And I said, well, sir, just let me ask you this first. This is what we can do. We can we can pay maybe a hundred dollar honorarium. Maybe we can put you up for the night. We'll pay out of pocket gas and and he kind of laughed and he said, "Well, normally she gets thirty five hundred dollars." And that basically ended that 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 was that basically ended the conversation. And we politely said, "Well, thank you." And and but. You know, that's one of the drawbacks that we have to handle. So. Well, it's a shame, but I think you've done well to be creative and to get local people in uh, where you can and people who, you know, uh, where it's only a two- or three-hour drive for them. It's only a hotel, and they're happy to sort of get out there and, and uh, yeah. you know, make a presentation to an Now, on the other hand, our, the speaker we're having, uh, as it turns out, uh, next Friday, uh, Chris Mikowski, he is a nationally known historian. And he, I, I don't even know his arrangement. And this will cost us a little more money than some of the local people. But, I mean, he does have a very small, modest honorarium. And he is a professor at St. Saint, Saint Bonaventure, okay, which is the western part of the sure. state. Mm-hmm. And I figured, well, that's not 
too far to travel. And I didn't. And and then in my last conversation with him, I discovered that he is actually. I'm not even sure how he does this. He's living in Virginia, and he's still a professor. And he must travel up wow. for classes at St. Bonaventure's wow. for Virginia. So I'm not sure. He, he's a recent father. The first time I talked to him, he just his, his wife just gave birth. The little, little guy is now a year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is coming up. but So he, uh, we don't know if he's coming from St. Bonaventure or I don't Virginia. know if he's yeah. coming from St. <laughs> Bonaventure or whether he's coming from Virginia. Wow. So it, this one will be a little more expensive. But I didn't even realize that until we were having a general conversation saying, well, he said, yeah, but I I live in Virginia. I said, Chris, you live in Virginia, but you're teaching. He said, yeah, well, I travel. Wow. Wow. Um, So I I should mention that uh, the roundtable does a monthly meeting the second Friday of every month uh, where we – Except July. Except for July and August. Yeah. Um, And the the first uh, hour – of the meetings it begins at six. It's at the water of elite senior center is, um, refreshments and everybody sort of mingles. Uh, there's a quick, uh, part of the meeting that there's a little business that's done, but it's mainly announcements. And then, uh, you know, we, uh, have a speaker who speaks to us about, uh, various topics. Like you said, Matt, Chris Mikowski is presenting, uh, on April, uh, on Spotsylvania. Yeah. Spotsylvania yeah. on April 13th. Um, can you sort of tease what he's going to talk about? Uh, I think it's going to concentrate on the absolute horrendous, almost unimaginable violence that occurred around the mule stool, mm-hmm. where the fighting was not only the fighting was hand to hand, bayonet to bayonet, axe to axe, in almost darkness, and a lot of the accounts say men just turned into fiends; they wow. no longer were men. Wow! People taking their muskets with the bayonets. And hurling them as spears over the top of the the, the breastworks, wow. guy, the, the the wounded, so many in front, in the mud, and the, that some were buried. They found wounded buried under other bodies. It, it it's almost horrible to think about. So I know he's got I pretty much. Um, I don't know if he's going to talk about Upton um, uh, and the 121st New York, but. Uh, um, there, there is that New York connection and as well. Spotsylvania is part of the Overland campaign right. of uh, 1864. Um, so uh, that's that's one of our upcoming speakers. And like Matt said, I, he is a well-known historian professor. So this uh, this is one to come see. Um, who else do we have uh, lined up uh, for, for, for the coming months? Um, Gene Barr in May. I've only met him briefly. Okay. Um, I haven't had much contact with him. You know, the The title, what's his exact title? It Civil is, War uh, Captain and His Lady. Yeah, it's basically, I think, going to be more like a, the, the Civil War love story between the captain okay. and his fiancée. And then... Um, so we go uh, from an intense battle presentation to uh, a love story, you know, a month later. So <laughs> that's what we have to offer the, at the uh, roundtable. The person that's coming in um, is... is um, uh, which month is, in June? Uh, in June is pa- Bob O'Connor. It, yep, I, I've I I don't know too much about Bob. And uh, coming up is um, um, eventually is um, Pat Schroeder from Mathematics, and Pat's another longtime friend. 
very loyal to us. He's been in our conferences. He's also the historian at Appomattox Courthouse. We've raised a lot of money doing the commemorative postal cancellation down at Appomattox at the 150th. Um, Pat talks us up and we talk him up. He's a book publisher as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's He is a longtime friend. And when he comes and he speaks to us in the wintertime, his hobby, and although he's getting a little older, I don't know how he does it, but he still plays hockey. Oh, wow. And his home is from upstate New York. And he combines a hockey trip up here uh, to speaking for us very often if he speaks in the wintertime. Wow. So. Yeah, I saw, I saw uh, Pat Schroeder a few years ago at Peterborough. Uh, he did a presentation on the surrender at Appomattox uh, in 1865. Pat has also done living history as a member of the 146th New York, which again shows his upstate right, right. connections. So we have a number of uh, great presentations lined up. Um, and Matt, you'll be in Gettysburg again uh, this summer uh, selling postal cancellations. Yeah, I, don't, I can't tell you the details. Okay. Um, uh, the last time, um, basically the only people that were there was uh, my cousin Mark, who everybody says cousin Mark. He's actually a member of our roundtable. He's my third cousin, uh, or fourth. I'm not sure how that works. His grandfather and my grandmother were were brothers and sisters, I believe. Um, but he, uh, I got him interested in the Civil War, and so when we go down there, Mark takes um, time off from his wife's honeydew list uh, to help me sell stuff and he comes down and it turned out I I owe him so much because if we don't have anybody else going down there's no sense of me to uh, get a room in a hotel Um, I we laughingly say I booked uh, my reservation at the Hotel Allen which is his house (laughs) uh, 11 miles south in Thurmont and um, and one way to thank him for it, it turns out the Mosby Heritage uh, Area Association has a tremendous conference every year. Well, this year it turned out that they were also going to be running a bus trip. Now, they're coming from um, Middleburg, Virginia, but they're going to be running a bus trip to Gettysburg, uh, and the one-day tour is the retreat from Gettysburg. You know, uh, and, um, uh, they've got Eric Wittenberg uh a, a superb expert on civil union, civil war cavalry. So I, they, they're traveling up by bus, and they're going to be staying in a uh, hotel in Frederick, Maryland. So I said, uh, maybe I can pay back Mark because he's actually taking me on his own tour of, you know, falling water, all those areas out there in his car, and we've gone out to various places. So I said, Mark, how would you like to? Uh, take part in this tour i'll t- i'll pay the cost so i'm ta- i'm 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 covering him but of course the reciprocal part of the deal is i get to spend three or four nights at the hotel allen right right and won't have to stay at the hotel <laughs> in frederick now the the dinner and the uh, the talk and the dinner is at a hotel in frederick maryland so what we'll do is we'll just leave his house and go to that and then drive back to his house which is only like 23 miles away and then drive to Frederick, get on a bus to come back north to take the tour of um, of, of Gettysburg. But I, I really appreciate uh, he and his wife, Janet, making their, their – it's a restored – they've done – it wouldn't even recognize it, but it, they took an 1852 farmhouse, which was right on some of the approaches to Gettysburg that the Fifth Corps 
took up to Gettysburg, and they've restored that house and they've modernized it. So um, uh, I uh, end up in a spare room in an eighteen what's been added onto, but an eighteen fifty two oh, farmhouse. Awesome. So that's great, Matt. Yeah. Uh, it, one of uh, one of the other things that you sell, um, which incorporates, I think, y- your other big passion is a shirt. Uh, I could try to describe it for you, but it's uh, it, it says Civil War baseball on it, and there's a very it's it's great uh, material that the shirt's made out of, but there's a very sharp graphic on it um, that's essentially uh, Union soldiers uh, in a camp uh, playing baseball. Yeah, in the defenses of Washington D.C. I can't take credit for the originating that shirt. Again, that was another project of Sue knows Sue. The way that happened is Sue was also into stamps and stamp collecting and Civil War memorabilia and Civil War letters. And for a number of years, they ran a big stamp and memorabilia show in the the hotel in Albany that's, I'm not sure what it is now, but it's near... um, 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 Oh, what's the street there where... uh, um, near where the exit um, on uh, 90. Um, Wolf Road? No, uh, further down. Uh, is it? It's not Carner Road. What's the... Everett Road? Yeah, Everett Road. When you kick off Everett Road and then you take a left and you're headed over towards uh, Manning Boulevard, there's a, there's a big hotel and there's some industrial, electrical, industrial buildings and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they had this big uh, stamp show a memorabilia show, and Sue had friends there. And one of the gentlemen who, <laughs> amazingly enough, was a direct descendant of Admiral Doubleday. Uh, he was a big stamp and memorabilia collector, and he used to come, and Sue and him would talk, and they would buy memorabilia. And one day he said, you can borrow this, and he had a Civil War envelope, Turned out the guy was from, I believe, Summit, New York, and Schoharie. And the stationery that the 76 New York, they were almost all from Otsego County, except for one company, which was from the Summit, Middleburg area of Schoharie County. He had written a letter, and either on the envelope or on the, the, this design was in the the actual stationery, the the letter paper. And... uh, uh, he had actually, the fella had actually handwritten and labeled the picture was so accurate that a lot of soldiers I found were actually telling the f- folks at home, oh, you'll see the picture in this letter, and I, my tent is down that row, and it had to be fairly accurate. And uh, so he loaned the, um, the letter and the envelope to Sue. And Sue, being who she was, immediately decided this would make a great shirt. We have been selling this shirt for over 25 years. Wow. It's the 13th to the 14th printing of the shirt. And what it shows, it shows the 76 New York playing baseball in the defenses of Washington, D.C. And there's a great mystery as to where the original picture came from we had time we could talk about it but the bottom line is we've been selling the t-shirts and the sweatshirts from that shirt and a number of years for a number of years when they had the big ceremony at Cooperstown with the Hall of Fame game 
we would set up in a little town square there, a little green square by the right by the, the circle in the middle of town, mm-hmm. and we would set up a tent and we would sell to to baseball people the Civil War baseball shirt. One of the uh, more interesting people who used to, who bought a shirt from us was one of the sons of Yogi Berra, and he was had an interest in the Civil War. Well, I think it was Larry Larry Berra uh, bought a shirt from us. So, um, well, uh, we're gonna put a picture of the shirt up. Uh, uh, alongside this podcast. So if you're interested, um, there'll be a picture and you could reach out to Matt um, uh, if, if you'd like the shirt. It really is a great shirt. Um, and I have a number of them because unfortunately I've grown out of a couple. Uh, but they really are um, uh, the great great quality and it, and it is a very sharp graphic on the front of One the shirt. One of the things you might, people might be interested in um, is that there are two major things in my life. I do. I read a lot of things, science fiction. I read anything, really. But coaching baseball, this is my 43rd year of coaching baseball. And I've been with the round table since 86, 87. So the Civil War in baseball, this shirt was meant for me. It was Sue's idea, but it turned out this shirt was yeah, meant for yeah. me. There's it's no doubt both, about that. It's man. both halves of my life. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, I have coached a summer team, uh, most years it was an 18 under team and I finally had to give it up after last summer when we had a good, good season, but it was very difficult for me at 72 to keep doing a lot of the stuff I had to do to run the team sure. by myself. But we were the Schenectady and Schoharie volunteers, 18 and under. And the reason why we were the Schenectady and Schoharie Volunteers is because the 134th New York was an entire regiment that came from Schenectady and Schoharie. And in the regimental history, there are a couple of references to the fact that they love going, watching, playing baseball. In fact, one guy said, we're going to go down and watch some officers play somebody from a Massachusetts regiment in a game of baseball, and we're all going to go watch. So it was very highly popular. So when we finish up the season, for the last, almost all of those, for the last 15 years I've had the 18 and under team, almost every year, we have finished up with a fun game. Nothing's at stake. Everybody plays. Everybody pitches. And we finish up at Cooperstown. And we hand out. It doesn't count. I actually hand out the season stats when we go there. But every kid that comes and plays gets a Capital District Civil War Roundtable <laughs> Civil War that, that's baseball amazing. shirt. Yeah, I wish I was on your team when I was a kid, Matt. Um, uh now, I, I know that, uh, like you said, coaching baseball is a huge passion, and you still do it. Um, how I think you keep track of how many games you've coached. Uh, well, what are, I thought, what are you at I, now? I thought I was finished at 1,004. Okay. And I've been, and this is only games where I've been, quote, like the head coach. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I've actually spent, I was several seasons as the assistant coach at uh, varsity coach at Chalmont, and up until this year, the last six no two three twelve last nine years i was the assistant varsity coach at twainsburg and i'm just an assistant and there's an the drawback and believe me it's not a drawback because i don't care about it but the drawback is except for some of the bigger high schools no no assistant coach ever gets paid you're just helping out you're volunteering your time but it worked out fine for me because if i'm not being paid 
then on those rare occasions where I was going to a Civil War conference, I could say to the varsity sure. coach, Chris, I'm not going to be here this weekend. <laughs> right, I'll right. see you when I get back. <laughs> well, this year I was just planning again, being the assistant varsity coach, working with the catchers and the pitchers and coaching first base during the season. And in a small C school, they uh, it's debatable whether you have enough kids to run three levels of baseball. And we had three levels uh, modified, which is seventh and eighth grade, and then JV and then varsity. Well, the last three or four years, there just hasn't been enough kids. So they've just run modified and varsity baseball. And this year, uh, they thought they had a shot. So they originally had a young fellow from uh, St. Lawrence University who was, I'm not sure exactly what he did locally, but he was going to be the modified coach, and I would still be the assistant varsity coach. But something fell through, and he couldn't be the modified coach. And they did have barely enough kids to run three levels of baseball. So out of desperation, they said, let's ask old Matt if he wants to come out of paid retirement. <laughs> so I now have uh, the modified team. And there are no eighth graders. All the eighth graders are up at JV. And I only have 10 players, and they're all seventh grade, and they're all 12 years old. And I have forgotten what 12-year-olds has been like. <laughs> so I am in a relearning experience right now with, a, with with really younger kids. Sure. They're talented, but right. um, it, it's the old, old expression of it's like herding cats uh, it really applies here at times. So. Well, but uh, that just means that it, it's that much more rewarding when they when you do put out a, a decent ball, yeah. ball club uh, at the end of the day. I, I, I did it mostly... Uh, because in order to keep his JV program, they, they hadn't had it for five or six years. Mm -hmm. And he had a shot to bring it back. And once you lose it, it it's smaller schools. So it's very, very difficult uh, to convince taxpayers that you, you want to bring back. it back. And they had the numbers this year. And as it turned out, we're only and it's, and it's very questionable because I only have 10 players. And, and for good reason, there's academic eligibility. And if one or two of them have academic problems where they become ineligible and one twists an ankle, you can't play yeah, with eight players. Yeah. So it's it's going to be interesting yeah. to see if we survive Feel the season. Team even for every game. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I wish you the best there, Matt. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, I remember as a, as a young kid in little league, we had a team with only nine players, and there was a game or two where we had to borrow. A player from the other team uh, so uh, I hope that you don't get into that situation I, I had uh, yesterday at practice I only had eight players one was sick this is practice I had a late shift last night uh, 6 30 to 8 because you're still in the gym oh <laughs> there's yeah. still yeah there's still uh, several inches of snow out on the field <laughs> up in Dwaynesburg um, one was one was sick and the other one nobody knew where he was and I found out somebody made a cell phone call and the, the boy was distraught because the family dog had passed away that uh. day and and i believe me i understand i understand that but i it's a 12 year old boy apparently was attached to his dog and he, it just was too much so uh, you know <laughs> so so uh, a, a family dog dying can prevent you from uh, siding a team of nine um but uh 
you know what, Matt, I, I have to thank you so much yep. for, for uh, agreeing to do this. Um, we're going to try to do, I think, monthly podcasts where... It's uh, a good idea. It, I, I, I didn't know... But, you can tell the generation. I wasn't exactly sure what a podcast was until sure. I got here. So uh, I've done, as I mentioned to you, I've done some videotapes. Uh, Scopeg is the name of a company up in mm-hmm. Schoharie. I've done some videos for them. Um, and that's interesting, too, because it, it was really, uh, other than a camcorder, it was really my first experience of standing in front of a real live television camera mm-hmm. <laughs> was, that was recording me sure was, uh, so so well, thank uh, you I of course it. Matt, and thank you very much uh, and uh, that'll that'll do it for the first ever capital district civil war roundtable podcast uh my name is nick and uh thanks once again to matt thank you